Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, the Eighth Commandment. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. That's where we're going tonight. Is it up there? Okay. It's pretty easy. These are the real short ones. So Exodus 20, 15. You shall not steal. So we're talking about theft tonight. But before we talk about stealing, I want to give some presuppositions about this commandment. Number one, the Eighth Commandment assumes that God has given us ownership of private property. Stealing does not make sense unless we have private property where we own something. Now, first of all, God owns everything. So Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in. So God owns everything. But what did God give to Adam and Eve to do in the, what we call the creation mandate? In Genesis 1, 28-30, God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So we are to have dominion over the earth that God has created. And so we see this in Psalm 8, 6. You have given him, that's humans, you've given us dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And then God says in Psalm 115, 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Now let's go just a few chapters after the Ten Commandments. Let's go to Exodus chapter 22. Because Exodus chapter 22, 1 through 9, gives various laws related to stealing. And it assumes God has given us private property. He owns everything, but He's given to us to be stewards of private property. Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. And you go on and on and on. Just There are laws related to private property back then it was sheep and oxen and goats and fields and so stealing does not make sense unless you have a something you own that somebody can steal from okay 
Now, that's one assumption related to stealing. But here's another assumption related to stealing. And we'll talk a little bit about this tonight. But number two, the Eighth Commandment also assumes that we should have a positive work ethic. I don't want you just to think of stealing as in taking something as far as property from somebody else. You can steal in other ways. Okay, we'll talk about that. Remember back when we did Ecclesiastes last year? Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Enjoy your work. Proverbs, the Proverbs have a lot to say about the work ethic. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says this. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So don't be a sluggard. What's a sluggard? Somebody who's... Hi, Nick. Somebody who's lazy. A sluggard. Proverbs fifteen nineteen. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Even the New Testament talks about having a good work ethic. First Thessalonians four eleven and twelve. And so to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You don't want to be dependent on anyone. You want to be able to work with your own hands. Don't be a sluggard. Have a positive work ethic. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Pretty clear. All right, so assumption number one, God has blessed us with private property. Assumption number two, we must have a positive work ethic. So here's the question, what actually constitutes stealing? I don't have this on your sheet, but let me give you a list. This just makes sense. Burglary, robbery, larceny, hijacking, shoplifting, pickpocketing, purse snatching, embezzlement, extortion, fraud, and racketeering. That's a pretty extensive definition of of stealing. That's what you normally think of when you think of stealing. Like, I'm going to go rob a bank and steal something. I remember when I was a little kid, I think I was probably in second or third grade, and we went to the grocery store. And... You know, the toy aisle in the grocery store back then, it was like, ooh, this was before Toys R Us and those big toy stores. So, like, you go to the grocery store. Red bouncing ball. Remember those little red bouncing balls? Well, I took the red bouncing ball, and I stuck it in my shorts. And I drove all the way. I didn't drive. I rode home with my parents, got to my room, took out the red bouncing ball. I'm so happy I was going to play with it. And I looked at that thing, and I, and I had this, this feeling of guilt. Because what had I done? I stole the red bouncing ball. So I went to my mom and I confessed. You know what she did? 
She drove back to the store. I had to go to the manager and say, I stole this. And the manager's like, wow, I've never really seen a family do something like that. But she wanted to teach me that even just the smallest thing. So when we think of stealing, we automatically think of taking something from a store or something like that. But let me just talk about other ways that we can steal. We can steal from the government by underpaying our taxes or falsifying claims for disability or Social Security. And guess what? The government can also steal from us by wasting public funds, going into trillions of dollars of debt, deficit spending. I don't know if you thought about this. Deficit spending is immoral when you think about it because basically it's bankrupting and stealing from our children and grandchildren. So even our, our nation can be guilty of, of stealing. We can steal from our employers while on the job, cheating on time cards, calling in sick when you're really not, taking supplies from work and not returning them. That's a way to steal. Let's look at the other way around. Employers, bosses, they can steal from their employees by demanding longer hours than what's contracted. They could take advantage of their employees. Large corporations can steal from the general public by fraudulent accounting and offshore accounts and all these things that you hear about Enron and things like that. Even common business practices that are acceptable in sales and marketing can also be considered a form of stealing. For example, price gouging, false advertising, salespeople who exaggerate the value of a product to try to manipulate people to buy. You ever been in front of one of those salespeople that was like manipulative and exaggerating? You can also see it in the credit card industry. Banks or credit card companies that give high interest rates. What are interest rates going now for most credit cards? Like 21, 20, that's really high interest when you think about it. It's a high, high interest. The Bible has something to say about lending, especially Christian to Christian. Exodus 22, 25 to 26. If you lend money to any of my people with you who's poor... You shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Okay? Junior, there's somebody trying to get in the room, and I think it's somebody from the cult. Just looked like, did he go down that hallway? Not sure. Be praying. <clears throat> I think he went down that way. Yeah. Is Phil here? Okay. Hmm. Well, we might have an eventful evening tonight. <laughs> so, so we're not supposed to um, be like a money lender. If you're going to lend to another believer, the Bible really says don't exact interest. You can also see lying or stealing in um, insurance fraud by filing false claims. Plagiarism is a form of stealing. I can't stand plagiarism. I am a professor at Colorado Christian University, 
in, in almost every class I teach, there is a plagiarist. And it's not that hard to tell because plagiarism is anything, technical plagiarism is you putting anything in a paper that's not your own words and not giving credit for it. Like copying and pasting from a website and putting it in. Like I had a student one time that copied and pasted an entire website into his paper. Didn't change the font, didn't do double space, and it was just, that's a form of stealing. You're stealing somebody else's intellectual property. And some of the newest type of stealing is identity theft. Who would have thought about identity theft that many years ago when the Bible was being written? So those are just some outward ways that we can do um, stealing. But let's talk about the spiritual aspect of stealing. It really asks the question, why? why? Why do we steal? Whether it's time, whether it's somebody else's property, what, what, why do we do it? Here's why we do it. Stealing is a failure to fully trust in God to provide for your needs. Theft comes from discontentment with what God has sovereignly given you and coveting what he's given others. God hasn't been good to me and given me what I need. I'm coveting what somebody else has, so I'm going to go take what's not mine instead of trusting in God to provide for my needs. Stealing is also a way to rob others of how God has provided for their needs. The overall spiritual issue related to theft is good stewardship of God's gifts and resources. Now, we don't often use that term much anymore, stewardship. What, what, what do you think about when you think about stewardship? Some people think about a flight attendant, stewardess. <laughs> a steward is an old word that was used of a person that takes care of somebody else's affairs. Did you get taken care of? Okay. You want to share it? No, Phil's not. Oh, Phil got it taken care of. Okay, good. I'm glad our safety and security team is taking care of stuff. All right. So Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God has given us a responsibility from the very beginning. We talk about work. God put Adam in the garden to work it, to take care of it. Whose garden was it? It was God's. God gave it to Adam to take care of. Did, did Adam own the garden? No, but he was a steward in that he took care of what God gave him. So you are a steward of what God has given you. What has God given you? He's given you, every single one of you here all have three things. You all have time. Some of you think you don't have as much time as others, but we all have the same amount of time. We have varying degrees of gifts and talents, and we have money and resources. Is time ours? No. Is money and resources ours? Are gifts and talents ours? No. Those are God's gifts to us that we are to take care of. Deuteronomy 15, 9-10 says this, Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. 
and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart should not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. Okay, so taking care of the poor. Proverbs 38 through 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying, Lord, I want you to provide for my needs. And I don't want to deny you and say, God's not taking care of me. Because if that happens, if I start getting to the point where I think God's not taking care of me, then I can go and try to steal from others and profane the name of the Lord. Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he have, may, may have something to share with anyone in need. Matthew 6, 19-21. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture tonight. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay, then Jesus tells a parable. Luke 12 13 through 21, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Taking care of your possessions in a way that honors God. Remember what happened with Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He stood up in a sycamore tree to see what he... You remember that little song? Okay. I always think if there was somebody that would be, to be cast as Zacchaeus, it would be Danny DeVito. I just always pictured, <laughs> pictured Zacchaeus as Danny DeVito. But that's just me. When Christ called him and confronted him and told him, come down from that tree and come eat with me, you see repentance in Zacchaeus. He was an extortioner. He was a tax collector. What did Zacchaeus do? In, Zacchaeus, in Luke 19.8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone anything, I'll restore it fourfold. He was a thief through taxation. And he said, I'm going to pay it back four times over. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay? So stewardship, taking care of what God's given us, being content with what God has given you, being a good steward of resources. Now, one thing you can talk about 
the issue of stealing, in, in a weird way, is the issue of gambling. I don't know if you've, I don't think I've ever talked about gambling from the pulpit or in church. It's, it's more of a social issue, but I want you to think about gambling for a moment. John Frame, in his book, Doctrine of the Christian Life, he gives six dangers of gambling. He says, number one, it can be linked to the worship of fate or chance. When you gamble, what are you doing? Lucky seven, lucky seven. I mean, you're, you're trusting in chance to get you ahead. It can be psychologically addictive. It can involve covetousness. It can be a waste of time and money, hence a cause of poverty. Do you realize a lot of people that are addicted to gambling are also in poverty because it's an endless cycle of trying to get rich so they blow all their money on trying to do that? It can be thought of as a substitute for useful work. I'm not going to go to work. I'm going to go down to the casino and see if I can get, get rich. And even when it's legal, it often falls under the control of organized crime. So gambling can put you into poverty. Sluggardness can put you into poverty, not having a good work ethic. And that would want to make you be tempted at times to want to steal from others because you're not being a good steward of what God's given you. Now, what does the Bible say about poverty? Let me just ask you guys this. Are there legitimate reasons for poverty in our world? Absolutely. Okay. Not every single person who's poor is somehow taking advantage of the system. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks about the poor, it talks about those who are legitimately poor, who are either disabled, handicapped, or they're being oppressed by the government or they're being oppressed by um, rulers over them. There's a legitimate reason they're in poverty. But listen to what God tells us about how to treat the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now, we need to be wise in how we do that, but we need to have a heart that's open to want to have an open heart and an open hand to those that are less fortunate than us. And by the way, 98% of the world lives in poverty. I don't know if it's 98%, but a vast majority of the world lives in poverty. Do you know how much it costs somebody in India to live a fairly comfortable, not comfortable, but how much, a per, the average person in the villages in India, you know how much they make a year in American dollars? What? $10. More than $10. <laughs> 5000 It's probably about $2,500. They need about $150 to $200 a month. And that's usually what they, most of the world lives off of $2,000 a year, like in poverty-stricken countries. So we're really not as poverty-stricken as we, we may think we are. Psalm 41.1, blessed is the one who considers the poor, 
In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Okay, Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What does the New Testament have to say about poverty? James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this, person religion, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Taking care of widows, orphans, the poor, having an open heart and an open hand to the poor. Also taking care of your own family. This goes both ways, I think. Adult, we talked about this when we talked about honoring your parents, but we are to take care of our parents and we're to take care of our children. And that comes in estate planning. Very few Christians have planned their estate. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have an estate plan? i.e. you have a will and a trust and you have all of your affairs in order to make sure that when you die, the government doesn't get your money in some type of claims court, but you can actually leave stuff to your children. You can leave stuff to, to whatever, like the church or to some t- type of charitable organization. Part of being a good steward is taking care of your children and also taking care of your parents. So First Timothy 5, 4 through 8 says this, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay. Stealing. There are four great famous stories about stealing in the Bible. So I want to explore those stories and see what they teach us about stealing. Some of these are more familiar than others. And one of them we looked at last week that we'll look at again, but we're going to go in canonical order or biblical order. So we're going to start with Jacob. Does anybody remember what Jacob's name means? Deceiver or heel grabber or shyster. I don't know. He's a a heel grabber. He was a conniving thief. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 27. Turn to Genesis 27. You know, this is like, this is soap opera central. They've rebooted Dynasty on the CW and they've rebooted some of these old soap operas. This is the first, like, this is soap opera central. Okay, you guys ready? Soap net. Genesis 27. Isaac and Rebekah are married. They're Jacob and Esau's parents. Jacob and Esau are twins. 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son! And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for my delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats, that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went, took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father! He said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you've found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate and brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near me and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, well, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came. And I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly bitter, great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? 
Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for your servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? So what does Jacob do? Now, this is an interesting story because ultimately Jacob is the son of the promise, but he goes about it by cheating and stealing and conniving. Talk about sibling rivalry here. Who's Isaac's favorite child? Esau, because he's a hunter. Who's Rebekah's favorite son? Jacob, he's a mama's boy. Okay, so who manipulates things behind the scenes to make sure this all happens? Mama. And there's all of this deception going on. So what does this narrative teach us about stealing? Oftentimes, breaking God's law manifests itself in dysfunctional families where manipulation, sibling rivalry, and ineffective parenting are present. Is there anything good that came out of that story? Father was blind, literally, but spiritually he was blind to what was going on with the dysfunctional family. Stealing, manipulation. Okay, so that's one example of stealing, even in the midst of the actual immediate family. All right? Do you guys know the story of Achan and Joshua? Let's go to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Now, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. So you guys remember Jericho fell. It was the first town they defeated when they crossed over the Jordan River. Remember, um, Rahab hid the spies. And so they went and defeated Jericho. And Achan stole some of the devoted items which caused them to be beaten or routed at the next town of Ai. So let's go to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Go to verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And it goes on and on and on. So Joshua gets up early in the morning, brings each tribe in, tribe by tribe. They go and they send men to go out and find out what's going on. Go back, go down to verse 19. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted to them and took them. And see, they are hiding in the earth inside my tent. 
with the silver underneath. Well, here's what happens. They go, they find it, they bring it back, they burn it. Look at verse 25. Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. They raised them up. They raised over him a great heap of stone that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Verse 11 tells us what sins they committed. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied. They've stolen and lied. But ultimately, what does God say they've done? They've broken the covenants. Now, what was the covenant? What was the covenant? Why was this considered such a rebellion, such an outrageous thing? What was the covenant that they broke? Well, go back to chapter 6 and look at the instructions that they were given when they were supposed to go in and defeat Jericho. Joshua 6, 17 through 19. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom he sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you've devoted them to you, take any of the devoted things and make a camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. What was supposed to happen? When they came across the loot... When they came across gold, bronze, silver, what were they supposed to do with it? Gather it all together and put it into the treasury, into the house of the Lord, the, the, the portable tabernacle. And that's what they were supposed to do. Okay, look at verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Everyone except who? Achan. What does Achan do? I coveted, I saw gold and silver and bronze, and I wanted it for myself, and so I thought to myself, nobody's going to notice if a little thing goes missing here and there. I'll take it, I'll hide it, I'll put it under my tent, and nobody will know. Next battle, what happens? They almost get destroyed. And Joshua's like, what's going on here? And God says, you've got a thief in the camp. And so Achan finally confesses to it. And then his whole family's brought out and everybody is stoned. God gave instructions back in Deuteronomy also what they were supposed to do when they went in to destroy the enemy. Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 20. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, Offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. 
And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Let's see if there's anything else here. And the trees in the field, human, and the trees in the field, human, they should be besieged by you. Does that make sense? Oh, are the trees? In the, I'm not reading it. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy. Basically, what God's saying is, when you go destroy a city, you do it exactly the way I tell you. You take the spoils and you bring them into the treasury of the Lord. You don't keep them for yourself. This was more than theft. Because what did it say there? Look at chapter 7, verse 1. What does it say there? The people of Israel, my translation says broke faith. Does yours say something different besides broke faith? They broke faith. They broke the covenant. It's a different word for stealing than what we find in Exodus 20. What was Achan's sin? How did it start? He coveted that. So, this was a betrayal of God's trust. Achan was pursuing an object of affection, in a sense, obsessing over a thing rather than worshiping God. In essence, Achan's sin was a violation of the first commandment in that that devoted thing had become a God to him. So, what does Achan's narrative teach us about stealing? Stealing and lying almost always go hand in hand. There is a corporate solidarity issue in that what we think will affect nobody else has a ripple effect that could be devastating. What happened to Achan and his family? Who died? Was it just Achan? His entire family. Now you may think that's not fair and I don't understand that and I don't understand it either, but back in the Old Testament there was something called corporate solidarity in that they were so tied together as a covenant community that what one person did affected everybody. You didn't just live life in a vacuum. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there's the incestuous relationship between the man and his mother-in-law and the people are putting up with it and the church is flaunting it, what does Paul say? You need to get rid of the sinning brother. Because what does he say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, what does a little leaven, le- what does that mean? What's leaven? Yeast. What does yeast do? It grows, it expands, it permeates. So when you want bread to rise, you want the yeast to go all the way through it, right? But what if it's gangrene or cancer? Do you want it to go 
because it's going to affect everybody. So Achan thought to himself, this is just a little white sin, not a white lie, a white theft, you know, a white, white lie. This is just a little sin. Out of all the thousands of Israelites, nobody's going to notice me. I'll go and hide it. And it affected the entire, the entire clan. Theft can also be a breaking of the first commandment because you sinfully desire an object and worship it above the living God. Jacob stole the blessing and birthright from Esau, his brother. Achan stole the devoted things from Jericho. Last week when we talked about adultery, David committed adultery against Bathsheba and committed murder against Uriah, but he also stole somebody's wife. So let's think about David for a moment here. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We looked at this last week, but we looked at it more in the sense of adultery. But actually, the way that Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells a story, it's more related to theft. So 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is after David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Uriah has been killed. David thinks he gets away with it. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, David, I want to tell you a story. So let's pick up in chapter 12, 2 Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and was with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add it to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Notice the, the way that it's worded. What does Nathan say David did? Look at verse 4. He took the poor man's lamb. In verse 9, you have taken his wife. You stole what was not yours. So David steals Uriah's wife. So you can steal property. You can steal wives, you can steal birthright, you can steal blessing, all right? What does this teach us about stealing? 
Stealing deprives another person of, a, of things of value that sometimes can't be replaced. How many of you have ever gotten broken into and stolen? I know, Glenn, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you because it's kind of... Some of us have gotten broken into. How many of you have had something stolen from you that cannot be replaced? It was like a family heirloom or it was something of great value that just you couldn't replace it. Okay. Stealing does that. It deprives another person of something that can't be, be replaced. And with David's case, and even with Aiken's, we often think we can get away with sin and never face the consequences. Now, let's go to a New Testament story that's a little bit trickier, and that's Ananias and Sapphira. So you got Jacob, you got Achan, you got David. Those are all Old Testament stories of stealing. Now let's go to the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. So this is the early church in Jerusalem. They were giving to the needs of each other. Um, Let's just read this story. Chapter 5, verse 1. But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Obviously, great fear came upon the whole church. Now, what was going on here? This was a case of embezzlement or fraud. He kept back for himself. Verse 2, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Actually, it's translated in the Greek text, misappropriate funds. That Greek word for kept back is almost the same exact Hebrew word for Achan when Achan took some of the devoted things. Now, what the text doesn't tell us is what there was beforehand. There was probably some type of prior agreement, a public prior agreement between the couples, the couple and the apostles to give the entire amount of the sale of the property. So I'm sure the text doesn't tell us, but I'm sure Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, we got a field. We're going to sell it for X amount of dollars. We're going to give X amount to you guys. So when they sold the field, They got X amount of dollars. What did they give? Did they give the full amount? No, they went back on their word, kept from for themselves, and in a way were stealing from what they said they would have done. 
So it also says they lied to the Holy Spirit about this. Thinking they had gotten away with it. And they, and they died. Now obviously, this is not, this is the early church. This doesn't mean if you steal from God or you don't, if you do something like stealing that you're going to immediately die on the spot. I'm not saying that won't happen, but it may not happen. So we see stealing in a lot of different ways. These are all stealing from other people. Okay, who did Jacob steal from? Jacob stole from his brother. Who did Achan steal from? The entire group because he kept it for himself. Who did David steal against? Uriah. Who did Ananias and Sapphira steal from? Basically the church. Okay. So stealing can be you perpetrating a crime or stealing against another person. Person-to-person stealing. But let's ask a deeper question. How can you steal from God? Proverbs 3.9 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. You can steal from God when you don't honor Him with your wealth. Now, let's turn to the Italian prophet, Malachi. He's the very last prophet. He's the very last book in the Bible. Malachi, I'm sorry. Malachi, not Malachi. Malachi, Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, 8 and 9. Malachi 3, 8 and 9. God brings the nation of Israel on trial and basically accuses them of stealing from him, robbing him. That's a pretty huge, that's a pretty huge um, charge for God to come to the nation of Israel and say, you're robbing me. And they're like, how are we robbing you? That's the way Malachi is set up as a courtroom. Malachi, there's all these different courtroom scenes, and God comes in and says, you're doing X. And they say, we're not doing X. And God says, let me show you the evidence of what you're doing with X. And they're like, oh, I guess we are doing X. And God says, you need to repent. That's basically, and all these different things. Here, it's, let's, see, let's see what the charge is. Malachi 38 through 9. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down you a blessing until there's no more need. You're robbing me, God says. They said, we're not robbing you. How are we robbing you? And God says, you're robbing me in tithes and offerings. Now, this is Old Testament. Let's talk about the tithe in the Old Testament. The tithe was forced taxation in a way. If you did not pay your tithe in the Old Testament, it wasn't like, hey, I forgot this week and I'll make it up next week or I'll go online, do online giving. No, there were mandatory tithes and mandatory offerings that came just as being an Israelite. So there were three tithes a year. The first tithe was a tenth of everything off the top. A tenth of your livestock, a tenth of your money, a tenth of your crops. This went to fund the temple. This went to fund the Levite priests so that they could do the sacrifices, so they could do all the things required to keep the temple going. 
Leviticus 27.30, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is Lord's, is holy to the Lord. That's first tithe, just 10% off the top. Second tithe that year, and this is yearly, the second tithe or 10% went to fund the national festivals. So Passover and Day of Atonement, there was a tithe. So now, now, now where are you at? You're at about 20%, right? Okay. Every third year, there was a 10% poor tax, which was Israel's welfare system and helping the poor in the land. So every three years, you'd had 10% on top of the 20 you were already paying, so you're at your 30%. Plus, there was a temple tax that wasn't just a tithe. So, in reality... Under the Old Testament system, the mandatory giving or taxation to fund the worship related to the temple was around 25%. So when you hear somebody say a tithe is 10%, in the Old Testament it was more like 25%. And it was mandatory. You had no choice. Okay, that's Old Testament. Let's make the connection to the New Testament. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a huge question that people ask. Am I supposed to tithe today? I cannot be legalistic because I do not see any New Testament passage that mandates 10%. But I do know two things that we see in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't necessarily abolish the tithe. In Luke eleven forty two, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You, should, you ought to have done the tithe but not neglect the others. Now, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say if you look at lust with the woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus didn't say, you've heard it said. And the Old Testament tithe. But I say, give X amount. You don't hear Jesus giving any type of percentage. Okay? As a matter of fact, you don't see Paul giving any type of percentage. Paul, secondly, he just argues for what we call proportional giving. Okay? Proportional giving. 1 Corinthians 16.2. Whoops. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. The text tells us that there was a giving of offerings every Sunday. And it's proportional. Okay, so what we mean by proportional is, okay, if you make, let's say you make $100,000 a year, or you make $50,000 a year, or you make $30,000 a year, Proportional giving means what? Percentage-wise. So does a person making $30,000 a year give the same amount as a person giving $100,000 a year? Maybe, if this person's not giving proportionally. But the way it looks is, is you give in proportion to your income. So if you give within your means, you give proportionally. Okay? One thing we do know is this, if 10% is a bare minimum and we're not bound by the Old Testament law, 
and Jesus has come and saved us and died for us, did Jesus give 10% of his blood on the cross? What did he give? He gave all of it. So as Christians under the new covenant who've been blessed by the cross of Christ, this should at least be a bare minimum starting place. Now, I'm not going to be legalistic and say, if you're not tithing, you're living in sin. I would say that's a good starting place for you to think about proportional giving, the base minimum. But church history does show us that the tithe was a common practice from the very beginning. In the second century, so we're talking about the 100s, there was a book called the Didache. Didache is just Greek for um, teaching. It was an early church manual that talked about how Christians were to live, instructions on how the church should function. It's probably the best early document that we have, the Didache, of how the early church operated. In the Didache, the principle of giving of first fruits or the tithe is mentioned as a basic responsibility for every Christian. I'm not going to be legalistic and say, thou shalt tithe or else. (laughs) And I don't look at giving records. So I don't know who gives what. All I look at is the bottom line. Sherry gives me a sheet that just shows the total amount. What's designated to building, what's designated to general offering, what's designated to maybe to youth or whatever. I just see the bottom line. I don't see who gives. I don't. Sherry's the only person in our financial sector is the only person that sees that stuff. So I, I don't even see that stuff. But I will say this. Statistics show how many, what do you think, what percentage, talking about percentages here, what percentage of American Christians do you think practice tithing on a regular basis according to national studies? I'm hearing 20. I'm hearing 15. Going once, going twice. What did you say, Tina? She's the closest. It's 4%. So that means 96% of Christians give here and there. They don't, they don't even give a tithe. Okay. Acts 11. Listen to this. Acts 11, 29-30. So the disciples determine everyone according to his, what? Ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did, sending it to the elders by the hand of Saul and Barnabas. Okay, so according to your ability. So it's proportional... And it's according to your ability. Are some people going to have a greater ability to give more than others? So it's not the dollar amount, is it? It's the heart. It's the ability. It's the proportion. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9, or 6 through 7, says this. Whoops. Come on now. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's look at just some some four things here about giving. Giving is to be an individual choice from the heart. You've got to decide it. I can't decide it for you. Nobody can force you to do it. It's got to be a heart decision that you individually make. Giving's not to be reluctant. It shouldn't be something where you're like, oh man, I, I've got to give and I, I really don't want to give and, and I'm unsure about this. Giving's not to be under compulsion. It's not like, have you ever seen in a manual where the offering plate goes around and we shut the doors and don't let you leave and make it go around again? Some churches do that. The offering guys kind of like, we don't have enough. We've got to send it back around. We don't have enough. We've got to send it back around three times. We trust the Lord's provision. 
And God loves a cheerful giver. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay, so fundamentally, why do we steal? Whether it's stealing from others, whether it's stealing from employers, whether it's stealing time, whether it's squandering resources, whether it's stealing from God, why do we do it? Here's the answer. At least what I think the answer is, biblically. Fundamentally, the reason we steal is because we're insecure, we're discontent, we're selfish, and we're not trusting in God's gracious provision. Because the Eighth Commandment is fundamentally breaking the First Commandment, we are not worshiping or resting in Christ alone as our satisfaction. Why do we steal? It's a matter of trust. Who are you trusting? Are you secure? Are you content? Are you satisfied in what God has given you? Now, how does Jesus transform the Eighth Commandment? Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Famous story of Jesus. So Jesus was on the cross. And who was he crucified between? Two, two what? Thieves. Have you ever thought about that? What are we talking about tonight? Stealing, right? Being a thief. Luke 23 38 through 43. So Jesus is hanging there on the cross. Let's pick up in verse, um, let's actually pick up in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this was a thief that got saved and went to heaven that day. So Jesus forgives thieves. Who's the most famous thief? We've been looking at thieves, right? Jacob, famous thief. Achan, thief that got stoned. Okay, David, a thief. Ananias and Sapphira got killed on the spot. This guy is actually, we don't know what he did, but we know he was a thief. He was being punished. And it wasn't so great a sin that Jesus couldn't die for him and forgive him and grant him eternal life. So Jesus can overcome the worst of sins because of his death on the cross. But think about stealing for a moment. As a Christian, do you have everything you need? Not everything you want, do you have everything you need? Do you have an inheritance waiting for you one day? So here's ultimately why we steal, or do not steal. We do not steal because we realize that God has provided for us a wonderful inheritance through His amazing grace. Let's listen to this inheritance that God has given to us. 1 Peter 1, 
3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We don't need to steal because God takes care of all of our needs here and he's given us a wonderful inheritance in heaven. Now, in closing, A.W. Pink, uh, he's an older theologian from the early 20th century. He's got a booklet on the Ten Commandments, and I found it. He gives five ways. I thought this was helpful. He gives five ways to help avoid the sin of breaking the Eighth Commandment, just practical ways to think about not breaking the Eighth Commandment. So let's look at these. Number one, he says, engage in honest labor. Don't be a sluggard. Have a good work ethic. Engage in honest labor so you won't need to steal. Work hard and, and, and work for a living. Number two, strive against the spirit of selfishness by seeking the welfare of others. Are you seeking the welfare of others? What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Are you seeking the welfare of others around you? He says, counter lust, the lust of covetousness, by giving liberally to those in need. Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your talents? Are you generous with your resources? Are you giving to others, those who have legitimate needs? And then he said this, which I thought was pretty convicting. If your Savior was crucified between two thieves, that the gift of salvation might be yours, bring no reproach upon his name by an act of dishonesty. And then finally he says this, cultivate the grace of contentment. How do you cultivate the grace of contentment? Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4, 11-12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That's about all I can milk on the subject of stealing. Stealing. 